This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, July 27th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. When environmentalist groups sue the U.S. Forest Service over actions they would like to prevent, it may come as some surprise to learn that the feds and taxpayers often foot the bill for the lawsuits. Holly Fretwell is a research fellow at the Property and Environment Research Center. We spoke today in Bozeman, Montana. What problem was the Equal Access to Justice Act supposed to solve? The Equal Access to Justice Act was created, in, to my understanding, created to provide funds for those individuals that can't afford to take a stand in an area where they are being discriminated against or um, or, or treated unfairly. And the, I'm sure there are uh, ways in which this law is used and, and it is, is providing for some of the answers that they're looking for um, and helping those individuals um, that don't have the same means to try to take something to court and, um, and get issues resolved where they are being harmed. But when we look at our public lands, what it's actually doing is it's providing advocacy groups with funds to go against the types of actions that our Forest Service and other agencies are trying to take on to manage the landscapes when they have a different perception of how those landscapes should be managed. So how does a how does this play out? What what would a group do or an individual or whoever wanted to make use of this act in order to achieve some goal or prevent some action? How does that actually play out in the context of forestry? In the context of forestry, if the Forest Service proposes a plan and they want to, let's say they want to harvest some timber, or maybe it's what we call a restoration harvest, where they're trying to remove some some dead tender timber or some insect infestation, or trying to reduce the risk of catastrophic wildfire, they, they create the forest plan and they put it up to what we call public input. And that public input opens the, the door for individuals and, and any sort of advocacy group to um, uh, give them their ideas as to what they think about this plan and and to oppose it or to appeal it. And if it gets to the point where these groups actually want to appeal the plan, once the Forest Service has gone through their regulatory processes, they can take it to court. And when they take it to court, if they win on any one of the components that they have opposed or appealed, then the Equal Access to Justice Act provides them with legal fees. And so it essentially repays the legal fees that they, um, the cost that they had to take this issue to court. Uh, on the other hand, if they lose, if the environmental group or advocacy group loses, they do not in turn have to pay um, the legal fees of the federal agency. Okay. So it's, it's fairly one-sided. This is not what you would describe as loser pays Correct. It is, it is very one-sided in that it really is only paying for those groups um, when they win their appeal, not when they, not when they lose. And, and they can actually win on little parts and components of the appeal. They don't have to win the entire case. They might have a case that has several different components looking at um, wildlife habitat, another component looking at sedimentation, um, and that they're appealing the, the forest planning process because of, of maybe the Forest Service. They don't think they, they've looked in deep and deeply enough at uh, lynx habitat or something of that sort. Um, and maybe they think the Forest Service hasn't looked enough at sedimentation and the court case can come down and say, well, indeed, the Forest Service looked at sedimentation very closely, but you're right, maybe they need to analyze the lynx habitat a little bit more. And then the judge can, can provide, uh, under the Equal Access to Justice Act, uh, f- court fees for just that component of the wildlife habitat because they won on that component even though they didn't win the entire case. So even in even in loss, a general loss, it's not a total loss. They can recover some of their costs for for doing that. Exactly. Now, in other contexts, 
the government is able to say to people who challenge some action under a loser pays system, uh, if you challenge this and you lose, we will pursue our costs, our court costs from you, which often deters people from taking action. Right. And so there is no deterrent effect here. There is no deterrent effect here. They do not have any risk in, in taking on these court cases as long as they're willing to pay the um, whatever fees they have that they um, that they may not win on. They might have some of their own court fees, but nonetheless, they have no risk for, for taking it on and taking a bigger step than, than they might otherwise take. What happens if a case is, is in court for several years? Oftentimes, if the case is in court for several years, even if the environmental group loses in the end and they lose on all different components, they kind of win in some areas because they have uh, prevented any action um, on the ground. They've prevented any um, restoration or, or forest harvest during that time period that they have taken this case to court and that they have opposed the, this project. We have a project here in Bozeman, Montana. It's called the Bozeman Municipal Watershed Project, and it is a restoration harvest that is intended to take place up in the Highlight Reservoir, which is the water reservoir for Bozeman, Montana. And this project has been going on for 13 years, yet they haven't gotten on the ground yet to do anything. The, the, the 13 years has been in uh, planning, opposition, and appeal, and it sit, has sat for the last two years, I believe, um, in the district court waiting to go through uh, another appeals process. So what happens here is when what they're looking at is restoring the forest to reduce the catastrophic catastrophic fire risk. Uh, fire was, is still likely to go in there. Fire is a natural part of the, the habitat in our forest. But we're trying to reduce the, the size of the fire and then the, um, the amount of land that the fire would take to, to reduce the amount of sedimentation that might um, end up in the reservoir, in the water reservoir. And through this 13-year process, Basically, the forest is getting worse and worse in the sense of more trees are dying. We have insect infestation that's going on up there. But no action has taken place, which is exactly what some of these um, advocacy groups that have opposed the process um, are looking for. In the end, it is likely that the Forest Service will win in the deal because almost all uh, of our planning processes, the Forest Service wins after some point in time. If you call winning, meaning now you can actually take action, but it's cost taxpayers millions of dollars during the time that we have tried to, to get this process off the ground. And sometimes it's no longer worth doing the harvest or doing the restoration at the end of this huge process. If we're looking at a process where we have bug infestation and we're trying to get in and remove timber to actually use that timber, that timber is only valuable for a couple of years after bugs have gotten in or after wildfire has taken over, uh, because after that time period, the value of timber for timber products is, is reduced to almost nothing. So in a, in a sense, the environmental groups or advocacy groups that are opposing the project in the first place are winning because they're not going to cut it in the end anyway, because it's not worth anything um, to harvest it. And it's just cost us as taxpayers millions of dollars to end up having no active management on the land. If we understand that fire is a natural part of rebirth, regrowth of forests, and sometimes because suppression that is putting out fires has dominated for so long, and it almost requires some sort of Mimic, mimicking of the process of fire to go in and either harvest or, as they say, engage in a fuels treatment, a controlled burn, or clearing out uh, brush or uh, down trees and things like that. Um, 
these folks essentially are able to, in some ways, win even when they lose, even when they lose. That is to say, the Forest Service eventually wins its case, but it doesn't matter because the the group opposing their action still gets what they want, which, you know, in several contexts, some contexts in the federal government, I'm thinking of the uh, EPA's clean power plan, uh, those plans are sort of set in motion and it's hard for the government to take the action that uh, would prevent a much larger, more dangerous uh, fire. That That is absolutely correct. The, the, the default on our Forest Service lands is no action at all. And it, it comes in part from these uh, advocacy groups that don't want to see any action taken on the ground. So they are making it more expensive to get any action done. And, and the regulatory process that we have is extremely costly to get any action done. Um, and the agencies are also provided more money um, and more direct funds to fight fire, to suppress fire, than they are to actually mitigate fire. So the incentives are really driving our agency managers to continue to fight more fire, which in the long run um, is likely to create more fire because we're creating more fuels buildup in the forest rather than removing some of that forest um, fuels and some of that, that buildup that's taking place there. So in the end, we're likely to create more larger catastrophic wildfires by continuing to fight fire instead of actually getting in there and doing some mitigation and mimicking what the fires might have done, at least historically. If we look at some of our timberlands, if we look at, uh, say, ponderosa pine type forest, they historically burnt every five to 25 years and we have suppressed fire for over 100 years now. So we've missed a lot of the fire cycles in those particular forest types. So to get in there and reduce the risk of a catastrophic fire, we, we're not reducing fire itself. We just want to reduce the catastrophic fire. We want the fire that's going to come in and clear the ground again, leaving the big trees standing. So in order to do that, we need to get in there, do some thinning, do some restoration act, do some prescribed burn, and make it look more like uh, nature would have done it um, at some historic state. Uh, we could argue at what that historic state is, but we know that um, at least at some point in time they, they burned a lot more than they do now. And we do have the knowledge and ability to uh, reduce the the intensity of the fire. We don't really have the ability to reduce the fire itself because fire is natural. Other forests, on the other hand, uh, burn every 100 to 200 years, such as lodgepole pine forests. And so we may or may not have impacted um, those forest types through our fire suppression activities. We can't paint with a really broad brush the uh, specific ends that environmental groups would prefer. That is to say groups that are likely to sue over these things because they have varied interests. Some of them would like to see uh, the forest untouched. With, except for, with the exception of putting out fires. Others don't like the idea of logging. They're concerned about habitat that even, as you told me before we started recording, even dead trees provide habitat. Uh, so, but I guess what is the, is there a general thrust for what these groups tend to want uh, when it comes to preventing fire or preventing some sort of mimicking of the natural cycle in forests? I think this is one of the hardest questions for our multiple use agency managers, which would be the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management. And that is that they are to provide for multiple uses uh, to for the enjoyment of all Americans. And when you look at the the 
ideas, the, the, when you look at the values that each different American has, they are varied, considerably varied. And we think about what, what different people want to do on their public lands or what they think their public lands are for. Um, I live here in Bozeman, Montana, surrounded by Forest Service land, and I use those lands to, to go hiking, to go biking, to go backpacking, um, to go play in the lakes, um, to put a boat in the lake. Uh, um, I also use them for, for timber products. Um, we have a lot of uh, forests that are actually harvested or used to be harvested on our Forest Service lands, and they provide timber products for us. They don't provide timber products for us anymore, at least very, very little of that, but that's another valued use of the Forest Service um, and of our of our of our national forests. Yet we have other groups that are more interested in providing for the wildlife, and, and certainly I want to see the wildlife and diversity and um, and beauty and pristine nature that's surrounding me. Hence the reason that we go for these wonderful thirteen mile hikes, etc. But we have some groups that that really want to see only nature taking its course. They don't want to see any timber harvested um, from these lands. They think that timber harvest in and of itself it's bad. We have other groups that think that some timber harvest is okay, but it shouldn't be clear cut. It should only be some thinning. And again, if we look at different forest types, some forest types, it makes sense to, to thin them um, and to manage the forest in that way. And in other forest types, it makes a lot more sense to clear cut them because that's what nature would have done to burn them to the ground um, and get really hot fires so that the, the cones will actually open up and reseed themselves. That's the natural process. So clear cutting might make more sense on those forest types. Um, uh, but the different groups want different things. We have other groups that want uh, off-road vehicles and, and motorcycles and some that are more interested in horseback riding. And so even just, even just thinking of the different recreation uses that people have, you understand that there's going to be some conflict of interest. So when it comes to the Forest Service trying to manage for the enjoyment of Americans for multiple uses it's really hard for them to prioritize those different uses. And those people that are actually opposing the, the forest plans tend to be um, extreme groups that want maybe no timber harvest whatsoever, or maybe they want motorcycle use through the forest, or um, maybe they want no human access, um, or they just want total wilderness, so it's very limited access. And trying to prioritize that comes to a political decision uh, because the Forest Service managers really have no other way to um, to allocate those resources other than responding to the various different special interest groups. It sounds like trying to figure out what to teach in a public school. Yeah, but in the public, public school, somebody tells you what to teach, right? <laughs> well, but you have interest groups. Definitely. That... that say, we want this and not that. Right. And so it's the different special interests that are that are sort of guiding what's happening here. And if we come back to these advocacy groups, they can guide towards no use simply because they can oppose and appeal the project and make it take so long and so be so costly to get anything done that by default they get hands-off type management, at least for a number of years while we're trying to work through this planning process. One related issue here, uh, uh, something that really surprised me, is that a, a lot of environmental groups want to prevent thinning. They want to prevent clear cutting, and depending on how appropriate that is for the different type of uh, forest. But you make the point that the new growth in a forest is really effective at sequestering carbon. So what does that what does that mean? And how does how do these interest groups do they are they cognizant of that fact or is the effect of that carbon sequestration strong enough to say 
we really ought to be thinking about this. I don't think enough people understand what forests do to reduce carbon in the atmosphere. If we want to reduce more carbon, we should cut more trees and plant more trees and grow more trees and use more timber products instead of the substitutes that would take the form of more fossil fuel intensive products uh, for buildings such as brick and cement um, and steel. If we use more timber, we're going to reduce carbon in the atmosphere. And the reason is that as trees grow, they suck in carbon. They what we call sequester carbon and they hold that carbon inside of the tree trunk and the faster they grow the more carbon they pull in. As they get older they slow in their growth and so they slow the amount of carbon that they're taking in. They still hold in all the carbon that they've already sucked in but they're not taking in very much more carbon at that same time period. And as they get really old, really old growth trees, they are growing very very slowly if at all so they're not sucking in any more carbon and then they start to um, degrade actually actually. And as they, that the part of that, that degradation process is releasing the carbon back into the atmosphere. So we can think of forests as a two-way carbon cycle. That is, they suck in the, the carbon as they're growing, and then as they start to decay, or if they burn, they send that carbon back into the atmosphere. If we actually get in there and cut those trees when they are um, at that fast-growing state and, and just starting to slow down, we can use those timber products, and that carbon remains in the, in the, the timber product. It remains in your wooden desk or your wooden shelf. Um, it remains in your wooden walls and your two-by-fours. Uh, a little bit is lost as we're cutting it, obviously, but, but for the most part, that carbon is retained in, in the wood product um, until it is actually burned or, or decayed in one way or another. Um, so what we really would like to see if we want to reduce carbon in the atmosphere using forestry is growing more trees, cutting more trees, and replanting those trees. So we have a rotational forest process. Uh, one of the interesting things when we think about this, if you go back and look at cap and trade programs, what we're getting when we're talking about carbon credits with our forests is we are paying people to uh, I'm going to use the word preserve, which it really is a, an inaccurate word here, but to preserve forest in the sense that you get carbon credits if you prevent harvesting. You are no longer allowed to harvest that forest. But the problem there is it retains the, the carbon that, that it's pulled in and sequestered when the trees are growing, but as soon as those trees turn to old growth, it stops sequestering more carbon. So now you have this, this area where you're holding carbon, but if you want to sequester more carbon, you should be cutting those trees, using them as timber products, and, and growing new trees. Holly Fretwell is a research fellow at the Property and Environment Research Center. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.